Good morning. It's good to be back here. I feel a lot of pressure this morning. This is the first time speaking in this sanctuary, and I feel this room, and I feel like sanctuary has been doing so well. I'm wondering if there's some correlation between my having not spoken and how well we're thriving. That's some of the pressure. But the greatest pressure is, as most of you now know, eight weeks ago last Friday, and then again eight weeks ago today, I had a series of strokes that for, for me came out of nowhere. It turns out they were the end result of a long process. But of course, that was a pretty serious disruption in my life, and I've only spoken once since then, and it was three weeks after it happened in New York as an event I wanted to keep, and they let me risk it. And when it was over, one of the men said, you're a much better preacher now. (laughs) So I'm a little anxious because I still, one of the deficits that that still shows up from from time to time is that I will stumble over a word, get anxious, and then my words will swap a little bit. Now, this is one of the reasons that I lean so hard into my Pentecostal background, because if that happens, I can just say I'm speaking in tongues, (laughs) and you'll have to trust it. But I'm, I'm kind of caught between this pressure of, you know, I want to do well, but I don't want to do so well that the word I get after church is, man, this stroke really improved your preaching. So if you are going to compliment, compliment me afterwards, which I hope you do, maybe don't say that. Maybe, maybe don't say that part. In fact, the, the rest of that story is the man didn't say it to me. He said it to the pastor. He said, he's a much better preacher now. And if that's what preaching after a stroke is like, you need to have one. <laughs> Please don't say that to Father Paul or anyone else either. So today is Good Shepherd Sunday. And what I'd like to do is look quickly at each of the readings for, for the day, starting with, of course, the gospel which we've just heard. And all I want to draw attention to is Jesus' claim that he is a shepherd, but that his guiding is not what we expect it to be. They tell him, tell us plainly that you are the Messiah. And one thing that's important to kind of keep in mind in everything that we hear today is that the shepherd is the image in Israel of the king. The king is a shepherd. David, who is Israel's great king, is, of course, raised up to that role from a shepherd. And in the ancient world, the king is often identified as the shepherd of the people. So when they say to Jesus, tell us plainly that you are Messiah, they mean, tell us what kind of king you are and that you are king in an unmistakable way. And Jesus says, well, actually, I have told you, but you can't hear it or see it because you are not yet sheep. You're still goats. And so even though I'm guiding you, you don't sense it as guiding. But you have to become a sheep in order to recognize that I've been leading you all along. In the language of the, of the church fathers, God becomes one with us so that we might become one with God. God becomes human in order that humans might become God. And we can riff on that by saying, that God, the shepherd, becomes a sheep that we might become sheep. In fact, to put it a little more precisely, God, the shepherd, becomes a sheep so that those of us who are goats can become sheep. Sheep. Sheeps are sheep. That wasn't about the stroke. That was just a mistake. (laughs) So what we're going to hear in Revelation is an articulation of how it is that God goes from being shepherd to sheep. And not just shepherd to sheep, but shepherd to lamb. 
and what it means for us to go from being goats to lambs, and then from lambs to sheep, and then from sheep to shepherds ourselves. And that that movement, we, that movement is what we're being caught up in all the time. So let's go to Revelation 7. This is the image, or an image, that John receives on Patmos. John the Revelator. We'll start in verse 13. Now what you, what you need to know narratively is that at this point in the unfolding of the apocalypse, the, the unveiling, there have been six of seven seals opened, and between the opening of the sixth and the seventh seal, we get this liturgical event in which John sees a, a number that no man can number, gathered before the throne, clothed in white, and holding palm branches. Remember our Palm Sunday celebration. Now what's fascinating is, I, I was raised in a church where Revelation was charted. Have any of you ever seen this before, like charts of Revelation? I was most interested in it as a teenager because of the representations of the so-called Great Whore of Babylon, which were quite salacious for me. The only, uh, we didn't have television, and, and so I, uh, that was my only insight into exciting images. I will go to confession after this, I promise you. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned again. But the, the, the seven seals were played out as historical events that were taking place in America right now. Right? We, we thought we had mapped out these events exactly. But of course, that's not what's happening in Revelation. It's not a prediction in that sense. But John sees this unfolding of these six seals and then this interruption, this liturgical service, and he hears that there are 144,000 who are faithful. But then he turns and sees a number that no man can number. And this, this is a device in the book of Revelation that is used again and again to surprise us, right? So John hears that the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy, but when he turns, what he sees is the lamb who's been marked with slaughter. So he hears that there are 144,000, but when he turns, it's an innumerable throng. And they're all clothed in white, and they're holding palm branches. Then one of the elders, and he, and he hears their song. Then one of the elders, we'll start in verse 13, addressed me, saying, Who are these, robed in white, and where have they come from? Who are these, robed in white, and how did they get here? Who led them here? What path did they take to get here? And I said to him, sir, you are the one that knows. This is what a wise prophet says when God asks a question. You know. Then he said to me, these are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. It's a startling image that their robes, which are whiter than snow, have been made white by washing in the blood of the lamb, which of course is a callback to the book of Isaiah, amongst other texts. And then the elder breaks into a song, which I will not sing, although I'm tempted. <laughs> For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. The one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more, the sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. 
the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life. He will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, what among us, amongst other texts, I said Isaiah is one, John, this elder, the song John hears, this elder singing, is calling back on Psalm 23, which is perhaps speaking popularly, the most familiar passages in, passage in all of Scripture for us. It's everywhere. It's ubiquitous, right? Psalm 23 has been appropriated into pop culture. It is, I think we can say, almost fully secularized. And because of that, we fail to kind of notice what it is. It strikes us first because of its familiarity, right? It, it is like the song Amazing Grace, it's hard to pay attention to what's actually being said and done in those songs because what we feel first is nostalgia. What we feel first is the familiarity. But what John says here, there's a startling detail. John says the lamb at the center of the throne, he is our shepherd and he will guide us, did you hear this, to springs of the water of life. Now before we turn to Psalm 23, which we're gonna do in just a moment, how does Psalm 23 open? The Lord leads me. Where? Beside what? Still waters. Still waters. What's the question the elder asked John? Who are these robed in white and where did they come from? Where did they come from? Well, they were shepherded here from the still waters to the springing waters. God moved us from still waters to the place of springs. Not the water that doesn't move because there's peace, but to the water that springs up because there's purity in life. Now, with that in mind, let's go to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. Everybody can give me at least the first line. How does it start? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now again, color me cynical for just a moment, but I think that one of the reasons Psalm 23 is so familiar to us is that we find great comfort in being told we'll have whatever we want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I have good news, bad news. Do you want the bad news first or the good news first? I'm very much a bad news first kind of person, so I'm gonna give it to you that way. You're not gonna get what you want. The good news is you're going to get what he wants for you, which is in fact what you do want. You just don't know it yet. Once you've moved from being a goat to a lamb to a sheep to a shepherd, then you'll know, oh, this is what I wanted all along. But the goat in you is not going to get fed by him. Thank you. Whoever supported that with a laugh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I need all the help I can get. So this, the Lord is going to lead us from still waters to springing waters. But I think a lot of us want to just stay by the still waters and the green pastures. We want everything we want, and we want it now. But that's not how we're going to be shepherded, because that's not actually what is good for us. So, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his namesake. 
And all of that is so wonderfully American. It's so wonderfully Christian. God takes care of me. But as you can imagine, on this side of what I've lived through, I hear that differently. And all of us, whatever we've experienced, whatever pain is in our lives, and all of our lives are marked by it, if we can be honest, we can understand that the way we hear this popularly just is not true. God does not protect you from life happening to you. That's not the way he shepherds us. This is why they say to Jesus, tell us plainly that you're the Messiah, that you're the shepherd. And Jesus is like, I'm being plain. You're the one that's confused. I'm not ambiguous. You are befuddled because of what's in you. The goat in you can't translate the shepherd in me. I am taking care of you. Your life is a mess, not because I'm failing to shepherd you, but because you're clinging to things that aren't yours to cling to. Things have their claws in you that aren't precious. They're defiling, but I've got to deliver you from them. And so there's a turn now in this psalm, a sudden turn. Verse four, even though I walk through, the NRSV says the darkest valley, but that's terrible poetry. The better here is the King James, which is what? Even though I the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now think about it for a moment. If the Lord leads us by right paths, how the heck did we end up in the valley of the shadow of death? Think about it. If he's my shepherd and he's leading me, last week Father Robbie censored himself, I just censored myself. I think he was a little better at it, right? But anyway. The, the Lord is leading us. He's our shepherd. He's guiding us. But notice we're moving away from still waters, through green pastures, along the right paths, right into the midst of death. Jesus, can we have a talk? Like, is this, is this really what we want to do? Move down from the heights where there are cool, refreshing pools and green pastures at the top of the mountain, down into the valley where the predators are because that's the way he leads us. That's where he's taking you and taking me. Go back to Revelation for a moment. What does John see? He sees a throng of martyrs. They're clothed in the purity brought about by their participation in the death of Jesus. They're holding the palm branches that signal the ways in which their lives have been conformed to his. They've lived Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter themselves. And that's what John sees. And so we're being led into that same pattern. We're being led down into the valley of the shadow of death. And the psalmist then says what? You know it. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Thou art with me. And notice what's happened. We've shifted from talking about God to talking to God. The Lord is my shepherd. That's third person. And anybody can talk about God in the third person. In fact, everybody does. And there seems to be a mandate. The less qualified you are to do it, the more likely you are to feel compelled. That was supposed to be a joke. But maybe it struck a little too close to home. 
Like, it, we have opinions about God and God's will. And most of the damage we do to people is because we keep talking about God in the third person rather than letting God shatter what we're saying about him so that we will talk to him. Think about how much healing would come if we just stopped talking about God and spent half of that energy in talking to God. And that's what happens in the valley. When you're up by the still waters, you've got all kinds of opinions. And the only thing that's gonna cure you is life lived in the valley of the shadow of death. The only thing that's gonna awaken prayer in you is that awareness that life is not safe and your life is in peril. In every sense, this is a hard world. Life is difficult. And we sometimes forget that when we're up by the still waters. But only hirelings keep you there. Only hirelings keep you at that place of illusion where you think life is something it's really not. Because here's the thing. If Jesus had stayed there, we would not be who we are. Think about Philippians 2. You see this same movement. Jesus does not consider his equality with God something to cling to, but he takes on our nature. He makes himself one with us. He empties himself, becomes like us, taking on the form of a slave and humbles himself to death, even death on a cross, and therefore God has exalted him. So Jesus, in a sense, is by the still waters of God's life, although really those are springs. I'll say that at the end. But then Jesus moves from that height down into the valley of the shadow of death. And here's the good news. That means that whatever shadows are in this valley, ultimately they're overshadowed by the presence of the one hanging on the cross. So whatever shadows are in your life, whatever's hanging over you, whatever feels to be threatening you, whether it's physical, emotional, relational, whatever it is, whatever shadows are haunting you, just know there's a darker shadow, and that darker shadow is the light of the life of God in the life of the one hanging on that tree who is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No matter how dark the valley is, there is a deeper darkness that is ablaze with the holiness of God, and you do not have to be afraid. Just talk to him there. Let him lead you away from still waters, down into the valley where he is, and you can see him face to face, or at least you can hear him. And then what happens? As soon as we get to that place, in the shadow of the cross, this is one of the things, and I'm, I'm gonna take too long if I do this, but. One of the things I love about icons of Jesus on the cross are images of John and Mary, and sometimes Peter as well, Mary Magdalene at times, clinging to him. That many of his disciples forsook him. But John, Mary, Mary Magdalene, Peter, maybe a few others, they try to stay close, even there. And what is a sign that we're becoming sheep and moving toward becoming shepherds and away from being wolves and goats is that we are as comfortable in his presence in the shadow at the foot of the cross as we thought we would have been in the still waters and the green pastures. 
When we say God is good, it's one thing if we mean life is going the way I want it to. It's something entirely different when your life is shattering and you know that he is with you. He is with you. You're with me, I will fear no evil. For your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now notice the movement is almost done. We've moved from still waters and green pastures down through the valley into the shadow of death, and suddenly that valley opens up into a broad plain, and he makes a table there. Not for you, or not for you alone, but for your enemies. And again, this is the movement of Jesus, who is one with God, takes on our nature, takes on our condition, lives it to the death, and in death, what does he do? He makes a table. This, you've lived this movement. Every one of you began in the still waters of your mother's belly. And now here you are at the table in the presence of your enemies. That was a joke too, but it's also true. He's shepherded you here. Think about that. Every single one of us begin in the still waters. And here we are. And he's doing that not only for you and for me, but for the whole cosmos. That's what John sees in Revelation 7. He sees the number that no man can number. Standing before the throne of God and hearing this testimony of the Lamb who shepherded us all the way into the life of God. Out of the still waters, down through the valley, into a plain where there's a table for our enemies. Why, God, would you make a table for us in the presence of our enemies so we can do for them what God has done for us? Wash their feet and serve them while they eat. That's what he did. I am among you as one who serves. Peter kicked against this. He didn't want his feet washed. Father Robbie talked about this last time. What we're called to is to recognize our lives have to be taken through these movements if we're going to be Christ to those who are around us. Think of it like this. If God kept you up in the high, highlands by the still water, those people who are suffering at the foot of the mountain would never know him. Your life when it's still waters and green pastures isn't graced. There's innocence, but there's no purity. There's a lack of trouble, but there's no life-giving peace. This is not a peace that passes understanding. This is a peace we very much understand. But a peace in the valley and a peace in the plain with the table where you're serving your enemies, that is a peace that passes understanding. That is graced. That is the life of God coming alive in you. And then, how does the psalm end? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. St. Augustine, in his comments on this psalm, points out that in his Bible, it doesn't say my cup overflows, it says my inebriating chalice overflows, which is, again, much better poetry. 
And Augustine actually says, when you come to the table the Lord has prepared for you, you get so drunk. This is a bishop, like you, you can confront the, the bishops about this. You get so drunk, you forget former happiness. You're so elated to be here at this table with God and God's enemies, or who were God's enemies and yours, that you can't even remember what you used to think you wanted. And then you say, goodness and mercy will follow me. See, the problem with being a goat or a really immature sheep is that you're pursuing goodness and mercy for yourself. You're chasing good things and you want other people to be merciful to you. But out of maturity comes goodness and mercy following you. You're not chasing them. You're not trying to grasp them and make them your own. You're taking care of God's enemies and yours. And what happens is the train of your robe becomes like the train of his robe. The hem of your garment becomes like the hem of his garment. And out of your life flows the grace that doesn't start in you, but springs up from the life of God. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And notice we've gone from talking about God to talking to God to talking like God. And that's what we're called to. Give me three minutes and I'm going to shut up. Acts chapter 9. Three minutes of quality time. Three moments. It's been a long time since I got to do this, so thank you for letting me. Acts chapter 9. I don't entirely understand. Those of you who preach regularly or even irregularly, and some of you preach irregularly in more than one sense, You'll, you'll know the ways in which a text, and I think this is true devotionally too, not just for preaching, the ways in which a text is kind of fluttering around in you and you don't quite know why. Well, that's what's true about Acts 9. I don't entirely understand, as you're about to see from the comments I'm going to make about it, I don't entirely understand what's happening, but there's something about this story that's just kicking around in me. It's the, it's the bird in, in my gut. That's fluttering, and I don't know what it means, but I'm going to say a little bit about it, and maybe you will know. Acts 9, this is the story of Peter in Joppa. Now, in Joppa, there was a disciple whose name was Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. She was devoted to good works and acts of charity. At that time, she became ill and died. She was devoted to good deeds and acts of charity, and at that time, she died See, if you have a Christianity that t promises you nothing but still waters and green pastures, you can't make sense of how can I be devoting myself to good deeds and acts of kindness and suddenly get sick and die? God is not going to protect you from life. God is not going to give you a gated community experience. That's not the God we live with. That's not the God we love. He didn't do that for us, thankfully. He's not going to let us do that for ourselves, thankfully. And so she gets sick and dies. When they had washed her, they laid her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples who heard that Peter was there sent two men to him with the request, please come to us without delay. And Peter got up and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the room upstairs. 
All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter put all of them out. Is that the music? Does that mean I've got to leave the stage? (laughs) Maybe we should just all stand to put pressure back on me. Peter put them all outside, and then he knelt down and prayed. He turned to the body and said, Tabitha, get up. Then she opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he showed her to be alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Meanwhile, he stayed in Joppa for some time with a certain Simon, a tanner. Just a couple of details. The first is, almost certainly, this woman, Tabitha, is a patron for these early Christian communities. She's an older widow, wealthy, accomplished. She has her own dying industry. She makes clothes. There are all kinds of stories in the Christian tradition about having seen Jesus and seen how poor he was and seeing his robe and being provoked to launch her own ministry of making clothes to clothe the disciples and that doing it in the colors of the passion, the colors of blood. Be that as it may, in the story, she is sick and dies and the disciples, when they gather Peter there, what do they do? Did you notice? They're weeping and they're showing Peter all of her work. Look at what she did. Now, this is double-sided. In one way, it's good. It's a sign that her works have followed her. But there's something odd about it in that here's a woman who's died. And I just realized the play on words there. This is a a woman who has not only dyed garments, but has herself also dyed. And what they're concerned with are her clothes, what she did for them. Look at what she did for us. And what does Peter do? Do you see it? get out of the room. Just like Jesus had done at Jairus' house, there's something of unbelief in them that's tied to what they've made of her work that they've not yet seen her. It's what she does for us. You see, they're still up on the mountain. They're still by the still waters. And she brings them down here. And now they have a choice to make. Are we ready to be with the God who calls us to be with the suffering and the dying? Or do we just want a God who always takes us back up to the high pastures? And Peter shows her to them. And then the text just almost offhandedly says, and Peter stayed in Joppa. You know why this is important? This is Acts 9. The very next chapter is Cornelius. From Acts 10 to the end of the book is the opening of the Gentile mission. And the only way that this is possible is that Peter runs into these people in Joppa, which is a cosmopolitan city, and runs into people who don't look like what he thought he understood. His world opens up right here into a plain where a table is set for the people he thought were his enemies. So hear me. Some of you are Tabitha. You're in the midst of doing good things, and death is going to come of various kinds. Don't fear it. 
Because it's going to liberate you from the way people see you. And God is going to use that to open up a broad place for a shift in vision, a way of imagining the world differently, a way of seeing our neighbors not as our enemies, but as God's guests called to this table. Let it be.